Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore much more exciting, distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. In this episode of Exocast, we cover a few of the month's most interesting papers from February, March 2021. Um, and as we've been doing for the last few episodes, we're focusing on a single interesting development that caught our eye. So uh, who's first up? How about you, Hugh? What's uh, what's news? Sure. So uh, this month I went for a... Actually, it's not an uh, accepted paper yet. It was only submitted. Sorry. That's my... Caveat. Okay. <laughs> that tends to be what I go for. Yeah. Um, so this may change in, in eventual publication. But the paper is called The Chemical Link Between Stars and Their Rocky Planets uh, by Vardan Adebiken et al. Um, so... We often talk about exoplanets as if they're the kind of headline acts and the stars that they orbit are relegated to, you know, second or lower on the bill, you know. But actually, every exoplanet is obviously born around a star and the properties of that star probably influence how that birth occurs. Um, so uh, every way we have to detect and characterize exoplanets as well is influenced by the star that they orbit. So we really need to think of exoplanets not as these solitary objects that are interesting by and of themselves, but as a star-planet system. Um, and actually, in some ways, we're lucky that, you know, stars are obviously bigger and brighter than planets. And we actually can have a really good understanding of them, even when the planets that orbit them are still kind of iffy, you know. Um, so that includes the bulk properties of the star, you know, how big and, and massive they are. Uh, but also things like the exact chemical makeup of the star. Um, and we can do this because each chemical element in the atmospheres of, of, of these stars um, absorb light at a specific wavelength. And the relative depth and width of these absorption lines in the spectra of the stars um, can precisely tell us the elemental abundances, uh, especially for kind of FGK stars, so stars a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller than our sun. Um, and so we can know how much iron, magnesium, carbon, silicon, etc., even down to obscure elements like yttrium, are present in the stars to precisions of only a couple of percent. So um, way better than we could ever hope to do for a planet, really. Um, and because stars like our sun burn almost exclusively hydrogen, the chemical imprints that we see in those stars should be the same as when the star, and therefore the planets around the star, were forming. Um, and one thing is clear from, from the measurements we get for stars is that um, the universal elemental abundance is true everywhere, right? I mean, it's universal. So, um, you know, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen are much more abundant than rare earth elements. Um, and when it comes to solid material... It's iron, silicon, and magnesium that are the kind of key universal ingredients that make up rocky bodies, basically. So, so these three should make up the bulk compositions of planets across the universe that are like the Earth, so ter terrestrial planets. Um, so that means iron cores and magnesium silicate mantles. And thanks to the, the efforts of astronomers over the last 10, 20 years, we now have a growing sample of nearby planets that have actually um, that have been observed both to transit, giving a precise radius, and we have you know dozens to hundreds of radial velocity measurements which give a precise mass by using the pull of the, the planet around the star uh, to measure the, the um, gravitational attraction and therefore mass of the planet. Uh, and one thing we've learned in recent years from such efforts is that there's this clear dichotomy between mini-Neptunes, which maintain a large extended atmosphere, and rocky terrestrial planets, which basically lost all of their atmosphere. Uh, and this is the kind of evaporation valley. And so this paper by Vardan Alabikin, um 
basically selects 22 of the best characterized planets on the rocky side of that valley. So planets which we have good reason to believe don't have any atmosphere and which for which we have precise bulk densities. So we know how dense they are and we know they're probably almost certainly made up of only rock and iron. Um, so for these 22 rocky worlds, the main control of that density is their internal structure, effectively how much iron is in the planet relative to rock. Um, and this approach, you know, by weighing a planet's core using the bulk density, this has been done for many planets in the past. You know, typically an individual planet detection paper, when you have constrained a density, you're able to say, okay, the, the, the core of this planet must be between 20 and, and 40% or some range. Um, but what this planet does, and it's a bit different, is that they compare the derived densities to the primital elemental abundance that the star suggests should have been there in, you know, when the planet was forming. Um, so they try to answer the question, does the internal elemental ratio of the rocky planets, so the iron to silicon ratios basically, does that match how the stars are formed and what the elements we see in the stars are? Um, so using their sample of 22 planets, they found that Yes, in fact, uh, stars with higher iron to magnesium or iron to silicate ratios on average had planets with bigger cores. Um, this correlation they found was only, you know, about four sigma, so uh, tentative for the moment, which you might expect given there's only 20 planets in that list. Um, and indeed, it wasn't unexpected. So astronomers have been assuming that this relation has been f true for a few years. Um, but this is the first time we actually have really good evidence that stars and planets are both born from the same chemical mix and that's, that planetary interiors can be basically constrained using what you see in the, in the stars. Um, there are some caveats though, of course. Uh, so for one, the range that the planets, uh, the planet densities, um, is a lot higher scatter than the range of stellar abundances. Now, some of this is because we can measure the stellar abundance very, very well, and we can't measure the planet densities that well. Um, but also, it seems to show that um, there are extra processes there which can sprinkle in some randomness. You know, we see it in our own solar system with Mercury, and we end up with a very high iron planet, despite the fact that the composition of our sun matches the composition of the Earth and not Mercury. So there must be some uh, some effects happening after formation, or maybe even during formation, which can either remove a lot of, of mantle or add extra mantle or iron. Um, and also they found, so there is a few of these super Mercuries being detected, basically planets that seem to have uh, much higher densities than the Earth. Um, and so these these kind of, uh, while they were found around stars that are richer in iron than the sun, uh, they might be kind of oddballs. You know, there might be like Mercury, some strange effect producing them. But they found that even when they removed these four supermercuries from the sample, the correlation remained. So even without these super high density planets, um, it seems to be that the more iron in the star, the more iron in the planet. And another caveat is that um, when it came, comes to calculating how much uh, iron to silicate you expect in the planet given the star, the relationship isn't actually one-to-one. -one. So effectively, iron-rich stars form iron-rich planets, but somewhere along the line, um, it doesn't end up with quite as much iron as you might expect given what you see in the star. Um, so what this goes to show is that looking in detail in, in exoplanet host stars can actually help us understand planet formation and tell us extra things about how planets can be formed. Um, and with, you know, TESS and more radial velocity consortia continuing to pump out some well-characterized rocky planets with, with really well-constrained densities, I think we're almost going to, certainly going to find more uh, links between the chemistry of planets and their stars in the future.
That's an interesting paper, Hugh. I wonder, I'm thinking about the solar system, right? And if someone was uh, looking at the three terrestrial planets, maybe Venus, uh, Venus, Earth, and Mars, they might get a very different story from the various elemental abundances and core sizes from those three planets. How well, actually, I think, I think they all match. I think the core size of, of Venus, Earth, and Mars all have, you That's know, within a few percents the expected um, elemental ratios of the Sun. So it's only Mercury where the relation breaks down in the solar system. I was really interested that we can measure these elemental abundances to within a couple of percent for... In the stars. Yeah. In the stars, for something very specific. But we still don't know the stellar radii to better than 10% in many cases. So no, we, can, we can do 2 or 3% with the stellar radius. For some of the them. But for a lot well, for of them still, it's, it's like... There's still a huge amount of uncertainty associated with the stars themselves. Is is one of is what I'm trying to say, and I find that fascinating yeah. that we do generally ignore that. Yeah, yeah, it's it is one of those things where actually the radius is more difficult to get than the chemical abundances, which because you can't directly observe the stellar radius, you observe the gravity of the star basically because you can see it in the in the the elements responding to the gravity in the atmosphere. Um, and then you can observe the distance of the star thanks to the parallax and the brightness of the star. And somehow between all those three, you get the radius, right? But um, there's no direct way to measure the radius of a star, whereas you do get these direct um, elemental abundances. So yeah, it's it's one of these weird things, you're right. Another opportunity to shout out Gaia. Uh, thank you to Gaia for giving us anywhere near much more <laughs> accurate you know, uh, measurements of those kind of things than we would have had five, ten years ago. Yeah. And it's going to keep improving uh, with with every single release that we get. It's going to keep going, keep looking at, at these these stars and trying to understand them. And I think it kind of is analogous to some of the stuff that we're doing, trying to understand these planets. Sometimes it's easier for us to measure things in exoplanets that are nowhere near us than it is to measure something in our own solar system. And not just because of the sheer statistical numbers, but because of the methods that we use to do these things, it's easier to do. So I think that that's a really nice kind of connection there. Andrew, what about you? What paper have you been reading this month? Well, I guess it's uh, somewhat thematically similar. And if anyone was listening to our previous episode in which we discussed why we study exoplanets, there was a lot of rock bashing going on, and not in the in the good way. Neither of you, geology were, rocks. Yeah, neither of you are very happy to learn about rocks. But I'm afraid we're going to have to talk a little bit about rocks here because they are important. I like rock bashing, to be honest. Yes, you know, hitting them with literal powers, rock bashing, but it was more. <laughs> the... I like melting them and putting them in the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they form rubies and amazing, amazing things. Unfortunately. Yeah. Not all rocks are that exciting, but all rocks are important, and specific, you know, especially some of the rocks that we're going to talk about here. So my paper is called Lithologic Controls on Silicate Weathering Regimes of Temperate Planets, uh, and it's by, by uh, Kaustub Hakim and others, and it's appearing in the next edition of the Planetary Science Journal. Uh, so these uh, researchers are based at Burns Center for Space and Habitability, and I found this a pretty interesting read because it's a kind of paper that's close to uh, my my heart, my interests, uh, in that it, it connects terrestrial exoplanets with some of those geochemical, biogeochemical processes that I have discussed uh, quite a, a lot on the show, but which remain, unfortunately, due to the lack of any real way to explore them in, uh, you know, outside this natural laboratory that is the Earth, it's relatively 
relatively underexplored area uh, in exoplanet science, and we're getting better at it. There's a lot of smart and passionate folks who are, who are working to understand these connections a little better, with the recognition that doing so is crucial to understanding the climate and the atmospheric evolution of terrestrial exoplanets. We need to know about the rocks if we want to know what's going on with the climate. So in this paper, uh, the authors investigate the opera operation of the carbonate silicate cycle, which is definitely something I've discussed several times on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, a quick reminder, it's a process that's thought to have provided this crucial feedback between surface temperature, atmospheric CO2, and the rate of weathering of, of minerals, of, of rocks, and, and their various assemblages. Now, a quick reminder for those who, uh, who maybe have forgotten that, that feedback is that as the t surface temperature increases, the rate of kind of chemical weathering of, of rocks on the planet's surface is also thought to increase as that's a, a chemical reaction. Uh, and that's important because it happens in the presence of atmospheric CO2, which makes this nice uh, weak carbonic acid solution with, with rainwater. And there, thereby that draws down some of the CO2 from the atmosphere into the ocean as those weather materials are washed, are washed in there and, and, uh, and modified and oxidized and buried and all sorts. So the reduction in that atmospheric CO2 is thought to then reduce the greenhouse burden, reduce the, the, the amount of uh, energy that's, that's basically trapped by the atmosphere, which then lowers the temperature and in there, therefore lowers the rate of chemical weathering. So the process slows down and you get this nice little seesaw feedback in which it never really, really runs away too much. However, there has been a lot of debate about how much this process is governed um, by the thermodynamics, so that is just the rate of the chemical reaction as a function of its temperature, and the, the role of transport or kinetics, like how, how easy is it for this stuff to just happen, how easy is it to get the water into the rocks, how easy it is to transport that material uh, away into the ocean. Um, basically the stuff that moves, <laughs> is that the important thing or is it the heat? Um, and uh, it holds that if the, you know, the rock is exposed to water or the material is unable to be transported to the ocean due to some limited transport capabilities, then in theory, the feedback should be short-circuited and maybe shouldn't work as well. So in this paper, the authors explore this dynamic by determining the maximum thermodynamic weathering rate of different lithologies. So that basically means just different types of rocks, uh, and particularly they've split them out into continental and oceanic crust, uh, as well as the upper mantle, those three different lithologies there. And they interestingly find that the continental crust is one or two orders of magnitude more weatherable uh, than the oceanic crust and the upper uh, mantle mineral assemblages. And I keep saying assemblages because another unique part of this paper was that instead of just looking at a single mineral, they looked at that mineral in situ with other with other rocks that might be uh, realistic, you know, in terms of where we may find them, not just on the earth, but on other planets. And I think that's a Mm -hmm. That in itself is a nice approach. Um, the work that's been done before, whilst you know it is very good, has limited in application in that it is just a single rock type that, that you may be looking at here. Whereas the authors here have taken a, a much more holistic uh, approach to assemblages and thought, okay, well, what about if this rock, you know, what, a bit of silicate, a bit of kaolinite, just chuck it in there and see what happens? It's gonna, it's going to affect it. So this is an interesting finding, you know, that some that the continental crust is is more weatherable, uh, as it seems. Uh, at least plausible for this mechanism to operate on planets that have even less continental crust than, than the Earth. And I remember being asked at a, at a conference once, you know, what if we think about entirely ocean-covered planets or a planet with just a few islands dotted out? Would, would, this, would this process operate? Or, or how would it operate? Or how slow would it go? Or what level of CO2 would you need in the atmosphere to, to, for it to really work? And this suggests that the weatherability of these different materials um, you know, hasn't been well explored. And, and that's kind of important uh, for understanding how this might operate on planets with less or, or more rocks on the surface than, than the Earth. 
Furthermore, if we just think about the Earth, uh, seafloor weathering—that is, you know, uh, the, the processing of the of the, of the uh, seafloor itself—was uh, thought to be an important carbon sink in the Archean period, whereas might be a source of carbon now, actually. Um, but it's very poorly constrained as in our understanding of that. Um, and much of what we know only came came from a few lab experiments from the last century, uh, and more recently from some some great modeling work by uh, folks at the at the University of Washington. So it's again, it's a quite an underexplored area that has a very powerful control on how we understand the carbon cycle. So it's something that's definitely worth looking at. So as I mentioned, the authors find that it's really important to consider the, the context, the lithological context in which the, the material is actually existing. It's not sufficient to just say model that silicate when pure silicate doesn't really exist in, in that planetary context. Um, how weatherable the whole uh, mineral assemblage is is important as that alters the thermodynamic PCO2 sensitivity. That is how dependent on temperature the weathering reaction is when you hold CO2 constant. And uh, that's always been modeled as kind of this, this power law uh, reaction. So the big takeaway I would say from this paper is that on very dry planets that have low runoff rates or planets that have elevated topographies where you can form a lot of young young soils or young materials that are weatherable and that weathering is not limited by that transport of, of fresh material, the rates of surface weathering might be three to four orders of magnitude higher than the Earth. So that is that their they're, they're weathering rates become purely a function of PCO2 and, and temperature, so atmospheric CO2 and temperature. However, if the, the weathering is limited by that supply of fresh material, the standard negative feedback mechanism is kind of short-circuited as it becomes then insensitive to both temperature and CO2. If you just can't get enough material to weather, it doesn't really matter how hot it is or how much CO2 you have in your atmosphere. But what these authors found was that an increase in runoff, which was always thought to linearly increase with, with temperature, so that is how much rainfall is falling on the on the rocks and how much of that is being washed into the sea, that was always assumed to be this linear response. As the temperature goes off, the rate of rainfall and the rate of precipitation and the rate of runoff does increase. But they found that it doesn't actually necessarily result from an increase in temperature as was assumed, because this regime is actually not sensitive to runoff rates, only the rate of chemical weathering reactions, which I found very interesting. So they actually also found that due to this thermodynamic temperature sensitivity, as you approach very high temperatures, around about 70 degrees, the weathering flux actually begins to decrease with temperature and then becomes purely a function of how much CO2 you have in your atmosphere. Now, this is, this is a very novel finding because it suggests that many of the carbonate silicate cycle models that we use, including my own, actually, may uh, actually be wrong. Um, and especially as they approach this tipping point of the runaway greenhouse when things are getting very, very hot. Uh, and you might actually end up with a positive feedback that actually ends up accelerating this process even more. Um, the more weathering would lead to an increase in PCO2 and an increase in temperature instead of the other way around. And you get the greenhouse intensifying, which could very quickly uh, lead to a runaway greenhouse situation. Um, so that's something we're definitely going to have to consider and, and incorporate. Um, and I must say on a kind of... Uh, on a more like individual paper level, this was an incredibly well-written paper with a huge amount of appendices, which I loved, loads of equations, so we can get there. We can make some improvements. Uh, and it was um, down the philosophy of reproducibility, which I liked, right? 
give you all the equations you need to, to really to test this yourself. So kudos to the authors for that as well. One thing they didn't touch on, though, was the kind of implications for biosignature detection and atmospheric characterization here. As we often incorporate these kind of models, uh, or at least that kind of uh, biogeochemical processing or geochemical processing, uh, when we're thinking about understanding the role of the atmosphere, ocean, and, and geosphere, if you will, the rocks, in terms of the chemistry. And if we're thinking about different abiotic, that is lifeless states or different biotic states in which the atmosphere could exist, it's just really important to know the number of possible regimes that we could find, uh, you know, planets existing in. And this is going to be one of them. Um, so they haven't touched on too much of the role of biology in the carbon cycle, which is considerable and very difficult to remove. But I think their approach, you know, does provide this, this novel geochemical uh, framework in which you can generalize some of these processes now, assuming there's no life, um, and, and we can, we can kind of move forward with these models. So overall, uh, an interesting paper that had some quite significant implications for understanding, I think, terrestrial exoplanets, uh, especially those that are kind of at the limit of, of the, of the runaway greenhouse. Do they show kind of examples? You talked about Archean Earth, but, you know, is this applicable to Venus, for example? That's a good question. I'd have to I'd have to get into the paper again to see if they actually did mention Venus, a control F, perhaps. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, I, I can't recall off the top of my head if they did. This would certainly, that would have been an application. Venus three, three billion years ago, right, would be a planet that would be at this at this tipping point. And if there was some way to investigate that process or understand that process a little better, understand how we have a Venus uh, and how mm. Venus exists now, that which is currently not well understood, um, then um, this would certainly have applications to understanding the, the last 100,000 years of, of a potentially habitable Venus, for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a, like you've said, it's a nuanced and complicated mm. problem. There's so many different factors to consider, and, and the, I'm guessing the added complexity here of not just assuming one particular rock type, but assuming a a rock as a general aspect of it and all of its other contaminants i suppose is what we'd call them in, in geology this rock is contaminated by other impurities <laughs> oh that's just another rock someone might yeah. be looking at one part of the rock and go this is contaminated by this exactly. bit of the rock and someone else is focused on that bit calling that the contaminant um and and the fact that that whole system is really important as well so it seems like there's just kind of taking those steps to add in those complexities and seeing what happens and how they feed back on each other. Yeah, I mean, you could sum this up as we've been using a linear equation, but we should actually really be using a power law. And that, that would be it. <laughs> and they provided some excellent coefficients for us to, to incorporate there. Some great modeling work, a little bit of geochemistry in there as well. Uh, a good paper and uh, a good read as well. So there was another paper this month which kind of fed into that. I don't know if you saw it, which suggested that the Earth's oceans are lower than they used to be now. Like, so past Earth used to have more ocean volume. So how would that kind of affect these weathering rates? Would that change the uh, how these models have been run? I, I would certainly suspect so. Uh, if we were considering, you know, just the effect of having more continental crust exposed to the atmosphere, or less in this case, that would absolutely, yeah, would would certainly affect um, the rates of weathering, the rates of CO2 drawdown. Um, but then having a larger oceanic carbon reservoir, that would be interesting as well. Um, and then, of course, the seafloor weathering. Oh, you see, I'd have to get into the modeling, uh, Hugh, to answer that definitively. <laughs> and I think that was the point, uh, right, that it isn't as intuitive as it might have Im in immediately assumed, right? And it's it's not for lack of trying or, or, or this is just a difficult 
a difficult problem. Uh, and how often do we really find these linear relationships <laughs> in, in science actually working out that well? They generally aren't linear, uh, unfortunately. I mean, even power laws. Have yeah, they? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it probably isn't a power law either, but uh, maybe we're approximate, we're approaching a, a better approximation of, of the actual truth here. And that's, that's the point of science, in my opinion. Uh, we're just getting a little closer. Well, along that similar vein, I think we all picked up very, very similar topics uh, this month in the Exoplanet News. And the paper that I looked at was called Water on Hot, Rocky Exoplanets, which was an J letter by Edwin Kite and Laura Schaefer. And I, I really enjoyed this paper, not because it was it was short and sweet, but it also was just really clearly written with some very helpful schematics, which helped convey what is very much an unfamiliar concept to me. Um, so I'm going to try and go through and summarize uh, some of the things that I think I've learned from this paper. <laughs> um, so so first off, I, I love that we are now at the point where we can just, the first sentence of this paper states as a fact that most sun-like stars are orbited by hot, rocky exoplanets. Worlds on orbits less than 100 days with radii between... 1 and 1.7 Earth radii with densities consistent with iron, silicate, so rocky planets. Like, that's just nuts to me. We were talking about Kepler in the previous episode about, you know, how we were all kind of, we saw that happen. We saw how inspiring that was. Now things are just facts and it's only 10 years later. It's just amazing to me. I absolutely love that. So I thought that that was a really interesting. It kind of blew my mind when I read that as the first sentence of this paper. It's just something that we know. And it's really nice actually to be reminded of that yeah, every now and again. Just to take a step back and say, actually, wow, that this is how far we've come that we can definitively say that and no author no reviewer has said hang on that's a little bit too much of a statement right no that's fine <laughs> you can back that up with loads of evidence now so so this paper they're looking at very specifically those hot rocky worlds uh, that likely started out as Hugh mentioned in his news story uh, as mini neptunes with thick hydrogen envelopes which come from that original solar nebula so over time through different loss processes they their hydrogen escaped to space and the authors here are actually investigating how the escaping atmosphere could facilitate a formation of a secondary dense water-based atmosphere due to reactions between the escaping hydrogen and exposed silicate mantle material so this is talking about surface lava reacting with primordial hydrogen to form water that then is dense enough not to escape from the planetary atmosphere. So here is the process that they propose in the paper. First, the hydrogen is oxidized in a reaction between it and iron oxide at the magma atmosphere boundary. So we're talking about essentially a full magma ocean planet. Then there's hydrogen atmosphere on top of that. The reaction between that hydrogen atmosphere and that exposed magma, so that exposed kind of lava, between that iron oxide and that hydrogen, it allows that the motion of the ocean, motion of the magma ocean, had to do that, allows the process to kind of reach uh, an equilibrium state, resulting in an atmosphere of hydrogen and water between these two. Because if you react your iron oxide with your hydrogen, you end up with water and iron. 
And that iron, actually, because it's heavy, it's dense, it sinks to the core of the planet. So you're then removing that iron from the system. Then the cycle of the magma circulating that water into deeper into the planet means that you've got more iron oxide exposed to the hydrogen, allowing that reaction to take place again and again and again, creating more water and more iron on its own that then sinks and forms the core of this planet. So it's like a convection. Like a convection cells, yeah. So one of the really interesting things is that water actually dissolves quite happily. It sits quite happily in a magma ocean. Our mantle is full of water. The Earth's mantle is absolutely chock full of water. So you can actually sequester quite a lot of water in this process of drawing it into this magma. So... One of the the things is when you reach this equilibrium state in the atmosphere of this hydrogen in this water, between one, like the the water is between one and two times as weighty as that hydrogen atmosphere alone. So it's just heavier. And the, you know, we've, we've now sunk all of our iron to the core and the water is soluble. So it's mixed in that rock and you're storing it, leaving behind the hydrogen primordial atmosphere. And you're reducing actually the pressure of that hydrogen primordial atmosphere by creating more water, drawing it down into the magma ocean. At the same time, the star itself is causing that hydrogen to escape from the planetary atmosphere. So the hydrogen is being forced away from that planet and you're reducing the pressure of the hydrogen in that way as well. So you've got two different loss processes of hydrogen happening at this point. Now, one of the things that they're they're kind of trying to postulate in this paper is that that hydrogen atmosphere is actually what protects the water from not being lost at the same time. So you've got a hydrogen atmosphere around your planet, which is reducing in pressure as you lose more hydrogen. It's creating water at the lower boundary. It's being lost at the upper boundary. And the hydrogen itself is protecting the water from being mixed in the atmosphere enough to escape itself. So the question they're trying to answer is, does the water that does not dissolve into the magma escape from the planet's atmosphere along with that hydrogen, which is being steadily driven away. And the the hydrogen actually seems to act as the shield to this water loss because it's taking away that momentum and it's losing it at both boundaries. So it's lost quite quickly. So the idea is that that water is essentially being held much closer to the planetary surface than up mixed up in the atmosphere. So the hydrogen loss the change in pressure due to the reduction in the partial pressures of hydrogen is actually helping the water being maintained close to the planet and driving it into the magma ocean. So once your atmosphere has kind of been blown away, you're devoid of hydrogen, you've removed all of the hydrogen, you actually end up with a atmosphere that is dominated by the heavy water that's been left behind. So you end up with an atmosphere which is made of water vapor that is more resilient to that escape because it can be replenished by the water that is in the magma ocean. So as you change the pressure, you draw out more of that water from that magma ocean. And the idea is that you've actually got a huge amount of this water in the magma ocean such that that process is the 
it is dominated by the concentration of water in the magma ocean. Therefore, even if you lost a significant amount of the water from your atmosphere, you wouldn't be able to lose enough that you would run out of water. This process isn't describing water that's being drawn down from ices or the rocks themselves, but water that is being formed by that interaction on the planet itself with that reaction rate. So it's not talking about forming an ice that then gets sublimated and, and things like that. It is talking about that pure reaction process and looking at that reaction of the iron oxide with the hydrogen. So if the planet was further away from the star, it may still maintain a fraction of that hydrogen envelope. And if it's too close, it may even be too hot. And by the genes escape, so by the thermal escape of the atmosphere, it may lose that heavier water and become a bare rock. Um, the authors then kind of go on to point out some of the uncertainties and limitations of this theory and the models that they've used. So uh, that was incredibly refreshing to see from this, this theoretical paper. We're like, here's a process that we're trying to postulate. Here are the limitations associated with this process. Um, and then they also outline some testable scenarios. So as an observer, uh, I really like this part of the paper. Here's how we can test whether or not this is a viable hypothesis for the formation of a heavy water atmosphere, essentially. So what, what we need to do, what we need to look out for is first, you know, spectroscopic characterization of the atmospheres. We, you know, can we make measurements that suggest that the atmosphere is over 50% water with a low C to O ratio, so a low carbon to oxygen ratio. So that means it's dominated by oxygen molecules, dominated by water. So that's the first testable hypothesis they're looking for. It has to be kind of over 50%, otherwise it doesn't fit with the hypothesis that you had this hydrogen atmosphere shielding and then replenishment from the magma ocean. The second one that they postulate is that low densities compared to Earth, so about 17% uh, lower density for a 1.5 Earth radii planet could suggest that the atmosphere is dominated by this heavier water and that it is just a... It is a planet which is um, where the atmospheric mass is the dominating dominating factor there. Um, and then the third is looking at a survey of around 10 exoplanets, they say. They call them uh, planets within the endogenous, endogenous water belt in the radius valley diagram. So we talked before about this radius valley, this evaporation valley as well. Um, this point at 1.7 Earth radii where we don't have these very, very large puffy planets. We don't have these very, very small planets. There just seems to be not many of them in there. And they, they suggest in this paper that actually just below that, so 1.7 Earth radii to about 1.5 Earth radii is this, this is an androgynous water belt, which could be planets with this dominated 100% water vapor atmosphere. And if they survey they say 10 of these worlds in that kind of area, it might be sufficient enough to demonstrate that those planets have atmospheres and that those atmospheres are dominated by water vapor. Uh, so so one of the, the things that I always ask when I'm looking at these papers, what, what do we get from this paper? What are we, what are we trying to learn? What have we, we looked at? Well, my observer eye can, can only tell you that we get a set of very testable conclusions here with the potential for discovering not only worlds with atmospheres, but worlds with secondary atmospheres which have been processed. So a secondary atmosphere is generally considered something that is um, 
not come from the, the formation process, that solar nebula. It has a different chemical composition and ratios because it has somehow been processed to get there. Normally involves a surface of some kind. And this theory is deeply tied to that surface. And it's deeply tied to the fact that that surface is also an exposed magma surface as well. So that's another aspect that's really interesting about this. And they talk about the fact that the, the resulting water vapor, so this is still very, very dense water vapor atmosphere, is very, very much more dense than one Earth atmospheric pressure. We're talking about two to 10 times Earth atmospheric pressure um, for these pure water vapor atmospheres. And they would be Water, as we, we all know, is a very, very good greenhouse gas. They would also be very, very warm worlds as well because of this. That's a fascinating paper, Anna. I guess a question and maybe a potential addition. If I can potentially answer it, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe an additional observational thing is that this sounds like this would result in the pretty much like irreversible oxygenation, uh, oxidation of the entire planet, right? If you're completely oxidizing any of that 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 iron in the magma ocean, um, and I don't know if they touched on it as well, but you know the photo dissociation of any of that water vapor that gets in there would add another oxidizing element. Would you find an entirely oxidized planet, basically, after some amount of time of this running? Was that taken into account in the paper, or could you consider that as even an observational uh, signature, um, potentially? We've looked at something yeah, like there was... that on the Earth, but um, I think it would take it would take surprisingly not that long um, uh, to actually irreversibly oxidize the surface. Yeah, so um, they do talk about the self-limiting -limit part of the reactions that I talked about. So that iron oxide with the, the hydrogen and then the produ production of iron and, and water, there is a self-limiting aspect to that. So it doesn't just go on forever and ever and ever. Um, when the ratio of your hydrogen to water, so when the ratio of water basically in your atmosphere reaches a certain point, relative to the amount of hydrogen that you have, that self-limits that, that surface reaction process. So you stop creating more water through the process of reacting with iron oxide. So they do discuss that one self-limiting reactionary process. Um, but they, they do also make it really, really clear that there, there is additional reactions that they don't consider um, and that the, the interface between the magma and the atmosphere is the most important part here. Um, and that that interface is something that we don't fully understand. Um, I mean, you could think of it right now. I mean, Hugh, you are currently in Iceland. You're going to go see a nice volcano. That is an atmosphere versus magma ocean reaction. There's a huge number of reactions that are happening right there. You are going to smell it very strongly if you can't already uh, in Reykjavik. And, you know, there, there is, there's a whole load of things that you have to consider that that also comes from, from these different kinds of reactions. And also the timescales associated with it, um, because... You have to lose your atmosphere of your hydrogen slow enough, but not too slowly. Um, so, so it's all about balancing out all of those different things. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I'm well about the um, the boundary because I don't know. I always think of hydrogen as like light, fluffy balloon that if you let it go, it just it just rises, right? And it just feels weird to me if you have a a big hydrogen atmosphere and then underneath it is like a 2,000 Kelvin lava, you know, magma. 
and that somehow the hydrogen ju- isn't just going to be blown off by that immediately. Like, I don't know. I just never pictured a super Earth having a love or magma ocean hydrogen boundary at all. That just seems like it would be unstable somehow. But what kind of lower boundary a... had you imagined? I don't even know. I, don't... Yeah, if, if <laughs> I just not, thought it would be solid. If not or... H or HE, then what, you? <laughs> what, yeah, could what, what lower boundary well, I... What lower boundary are we, we creating there? I mean, it's, it's a good point. It's really hard it's to weird. imagine, but you have to think um, that all gases and you know, all of the things that we talk about when we talk about this escape, we really are kind of focusing on genes escape, on this thermal escape, or some some things focus on the hydrodynamical escape as well. And there is a distribution of velocities around a normal that those, those molecules have. Um, so even if a majority of your molecules might be, you know, escaping, you've still got that tail end of the extremes that have to be interacting with a boundary condition. The question you have to ask then, and and models like this, and and I know that they've done a number of investigations following these different magma interactions and how important the, the magma ocean is for sequestering material and giving off material as well. You have to think about how much do I need? If it's just a little bit, then all distributions, thermal velocity distributions, are going to have those tail ends. They're going to have those little bits that do have that interaction. How important is that? So you've got to think about the fraction of that that partial pressure that we're talking about. We don't talk about it as the pressure of the whole atmosphere. We talk about it as the, the associated pressure with that reaction um, and that region that we're talking about. So it is, um, yeah, it's a very good question. It is hard to imagine, right? Yeah. I guess I thought because it's such high pressure, everything will be solid but yeah I don't, I don't. maybe this might be a good juncture to say if any of the authors of any of our papers are listening and, <laughs> and feel like we maybe didn't cover it as well as as they would like or they could answer any of the questions that we or our listeners have please do get in touch and we'd we'd happily have you on the show or at least uh produce a little soundbite or or nugget we want to be accurate that's the most important address thing. all complaints to yes. complaints at exocast.org exactly. which is yeah, I, I'd like to be told and corrected when I get these wrong, because I'm reading these papers and I'm trying to understand them. I'm trying to say half the words in there. That there is, even within the field of exoplanets, like we've said many, many times, it's so diverse, it's so broad. There's a lot of jargon in there that even each of us individually may not understand. Um, so I, I hope that when we're going through these papers and we've been trying to do this, it's really interesting that we all kind of come up with themes and stuff. We do kind of stick in our own little realms and try to learn something new as well. So um, I found this really interesting and they have a lot of really good diagrams that may help answer some of Hugh's questions as well. And Hannah, I just want to jump in here and say it wasn't wasn't just because of our current discussion, but because this was the kind of end of our news. And certainly I don't feel like, you know, I I was uh, entirely uh, an expert on my paper either. So certainly any of uh, any of our, uh, our authors from our new segment this uh, this month or yeah. any of the other months uh, get in touch we'd love to hear Please from get you in touch, yeah, yeah we would love to hear from you okay well don't forget to look out for our other episode this month uh, where we ask the deep question of why do we study exoplanets and you can get in touch to let us know all your thoughts on the show at exo underscore cast on twitter and of course, you can find all our other episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcasting apps. Plus, you can buy merchandise at our Threadless store, exocast.threadless.com. Or if you just want to help us cover some web server costs, then you can, of course, contribute a few dollars at buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. But for now, thanks very much for listening. Till next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening. Exocast. I have exoplanets. Hugh, please stop highlighting as I'm reading. <laughs> I swear to fucking God. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> it's like, there's the cursor. Is he doing it? Yes, he's doing it. <laughs> uh... Shared documents. Love them. Exocast.